Well, good morning, church. Welcome. It's good to have you here with us for our Sunday morning service. This is uh, Lessons for a Quarantine Church, part four. We're going to look at Psalm 119, verse 71, and the title for this study is What to Do When You Can't Understand Why God Doesn't Deliver You from Your Trial. What to do when you can't understand why God doesn't deliver you from your trial. Uh, 119, Psalm 119, verse 71, the psalmist says, in words that seem hard to believe for most of us, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I don't imagine very many people claim that as a favorite text. There's something about it that grates a little bit. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I can still remember, this is years back now, when Larry King Live was still on the air and he was hosting a, kind of a panel, a group of religious, I'll call them religious celebrities, and they were all sort of listening as Pat Boone was on and he was sharing the story of his grandson. Pat's daughter was on the program as well. And at the time of the taping, this is years back, Pat's grandson had been in hospital. He had been in a coma, very ill, for several weeks. And Pat and his daughter, of course, were there, and they were trying to plead with the viewing audience to pray for this young grandson's recovery. Now, on the show were Max Licato, Kenneth Copeland, uh, the pastor of the church where Pat's grandson attended. And the question, naturally, naturally, the question kind of revolved around the why. Why do these things happen to good people? Um, where was God? Why hadn't he answered the prayers of all these people? And Larry King, very bluntly, just asked the question. He asked it straight to Kenneth Copeland. He said, does God ever send these things to people? Are these things ever the result of God's hand? And Kenneth Copeland was just instantaneous in, in his response, very dogmatic. He said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God never does these things to his people. He's a good and a loving God and Virtually all the guests on the show, with the exception of Max Licato, they all kind of said, Amen. Now, to be fair, it's not a, a light issue to even study. It's a hard issue, let alone solve. And that's partly because the scriptures don't land on just one side of the question or the other. The verses of the Bible seem to say two things at once, and it's almost like they're asking us to hold two things together. First, God is sovereign and, and does all things. Exodus chapter 4, 10 to 12. I hope you have a Bible or get one. Moses is complaining he doesn't want to go and be God's messenger. And then the Lord, Moses said to the Lord, this is Exodus 4.10. Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, 
I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm, I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. I'm not, I'm not a good word person, he says. Look at, look at the Lord's response. The Lord said to him, verse 11, this is Bible now. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And yet, at the same time, there's no denying, even when you read those, those pretty um, strict-sounding words, there's no denying that the Scriptures teach that God is always good. The very psalm we're studying, Psalm 119, makes this point just with stark simplicity. In verse 68, you are good, and you do good. There it is. You are good, you do good. What does God do? He does good. That's what God does. So, there's no denying God is good. And there's no denying that everything God does is good. The, the problem is where the rubber meets the road. The problem is the psalmist goes on to say three verses later in our opening text, that it was good that he was afflicted. So, so how do you put all this together? How can it be? How can affliction be good? It's more than just, you know, we're not just doing a little theological curiosity study here. It's not just uh, philosophic meat grinding. This has to do with how you keep your heart in times of trial. It has to do with what ideas sweep over your soul with problems that don't go away, trials that seem ongoing, when life seems to bring pain. It, it has to do with whether or not you have to play spiritual make-believe, maybe just try and confess your way out of it, pretend the situation isn't really there. It, it's just sad. To me, it's just sad and spiritually cruel that there are thousands of Christians who have, who have built a doctrine of the goodness of God that forces them almost to pretend that afflictions don't exist. Now we come to our text. And I, can't, I just can't think of a verse of Scripture that flies more in the face of what many Christians and many churches believe and teach than that text. I mean, we try and avoid affliction. We don't go looking for it. Most of the time, we look at afflictions as things that are evil, not good. Most of the time, we think of them as coming from Satan, not from God. And many times, that's true. Many times, it's true that they come from the devil. Jesus said the devil came to kill and steal and destroy in contrast, you look at the life of Jesus. He didn't go around making people sick. He went around making them well and whole. But it's just too simplistic to say, there, that's the whole story. There are other pieces. 
You have to put all the pieces together, blend all the verses, all the teaching into a picture that you get the whole counsel of God and the whole work of God, even in our unpleasant circumstances. So let's, let's look at our verse carefully. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So it's not rocket science, I don't think, at least this much, to see two big ideas in these words. David says that his afflictions, while they were painful, he says they were good, not bad. That's just right there. It is good for me that I was afflicted. The second thing, David says his afflictions taught him God's statutes in a way that pleasure never did. That I may learn your statutes. He knew, he knew God's statutes, but to learn them in a deeper and fuller way. So the afflictions, while they were painful, they were good, not bad. And the afflictions taught him God's statutes in a way that pleasure didn't. I think those are the key ideas. So it's not God's plan to remove all the trials and all the afflictions from my life. It just isn't. I mean, he very graciously removes some. I may never know till glory how many he spared me. But he loves me too much to remove all of them. So, so the key seems to be to learn God's purpose in the afflictions that he doesn't remove. That's the key. The key is to understand why he is doing this, what his purpose is, so that I can grow. Because once you know, I mean, once you really know the truth of that verse, the psalmist says afflictions can create a faith and a confidence in God that can stand up and grow through what appears to be simply dark, empty, confusing times of struggle. So I I will begin to see more of the goodness of God than I previously saw, even in the middle of my trial. That's the learning curve. Let me just give you the principles that I try to hold on to in times like this with a verse like this. First, the good God is working for in my life is not my comfort, but my being conformed to Christ. Whenever whenever someone is involved in shaping your life, it's important that you understand their goal in the things that they do. This is in all of life. I mean, if you don't understand the goal of their actions, you'll misread their intentions. You won't understand what's going on. When I was uh, a young child... I thought every teacher that gave me homework was being mean to me. I thought my parents were cruel when they made me go to the dentist. But that's only because I was too young and I was too foolish to have a clear picture of what their goal was in those events. If you only look at the action 
and you don't have an understanding of the purpose in the action, then you'll misread it. You just won't see goodness in it, even though goodness is there. So, what is Christ's goal in everything that he does in my life? What is he trying to do? That, it seems to me, is question number one. You have to answer that question first before you start looking at all of the events and circumstances that he brings into my life. Fortunately, we don't have to guess. We don't know everything, but here's one thing we do know. We know what God's purpose is for my life. Romans 8, 28, 29. And we know, notice those words, we know. This is a knowledge thing. It's an understanding thing. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's the purpose word. Okay, what's what's the purpose? 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. There's what you'd underline conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and sisters who would be conformed, shaped into the likeness of Christ. God's purpose is to make you and to make me like Jesus. We don't have to guess that. We're told that. So this is why God saved you. I think, I think it's important that we be big picture Christians. God didn't just save me because he thought I was in a jam and he had nothing else to do. God saved me as a work project. And and as precious as it is, forgiveness wasn't the end of the project. Forgiveness was just the beginning of the project. And now, from the moment of my new birth, God has a plan. God wants to use everything at his disposal, trials included, to make me less like I was before conversion in my fallen state and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Let me say it in a way that maybe will be more striking so that we'll all remember it. The only reason God leaves us here on earth instead of taking us immediately to heaven at the moment of our conversion, the only reason is to make us so totally different from the world around us and so much like Jesus Christ that our witness will bring other people to glory with us. That's why we're here. We know that's his purpose because he said if we ever lose that uh, distinguishing Christ-likeness, that flavor of Christ in our heart. If people don't see the difference in our words, our actions, our reactions, our affections, if the salt loses its savor, Jesus says, ah, it's useless. So God, by the inward work of the Holy Spirit, he, he labors, he works. That's the word Paul uses in Romans. He works to conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And and here's the important point. God will sacrifice anything else to complete that process in my life. And if I forget 
that idea, that key idea, I'll never understand much of what God does in my life day by day. He has this primary overriding goal, our good God. And he will sacrifice anything else to get that accomplished in my life. That's how much he loves me. So in other words, God, in his wise love, he will do whatever it takes to make me less worldly. He will do whatever it takes to make me love this world, the material aspects of this world, less. He will do whatever it takes to make me more patient. He will do whatever it takes to make me less idolatrous in my material affections. He will do whatever it takes to help me call upon his name in prayer with greater earnestness and passion. That's, that's the kind of work God is doing. So this is the understanding that has to frame the rest of our discussion. This is the good that God is dedicated to bringing about in my life. And this is the good, the same good that David said his affliction helped accomplish. So, so second point. God is so loving and so wise and so powerful that he can accomplish this good through times of affliction. Here's the important part. Regardless of the source of the affliction. Can I offer you just my two cents worth, my humble advice. When you're in a trial, when you're right in the middle of it, unless God makes this absolutely vividly clear to you and you can confirm it with wise believers and you can confirm it with the backing of the scriptures, unless you can confirm all of that, don't spend a lot of time trying to track the source of your problem, where it's coming from. You, you can wear yourself out second-guessing. Is this the work of the devil? Is this the chastening hand of the Lord? Is this just some thoughtless, uh, fallen human being being cruel to me? And a lot of times, when you're in the thick of the trial, it's very hard to determine the source of it. And, and, and that's not even the point. That's not what you need to know most. Let me give you something much more important to think about. And I think I can show you this from God's word in just a minute. Let me give you something much more important to think about when you are afflicted. Whatever the source is, God can bring good out of it if you will patiently, persistently, meekly draw close to him and stay close to him. I know that's true just from the teaching of the scriptures, and I want to give you some examples now as we start to wrap up. A, God can work good in our lives when other people are thoughtless and downright wicked to us. God can still bring good out of that. I get that from Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, Joseph speaking to his brothers, just these human physical relatives, as for you, you meant evil against me. So that, there, you're just mean. But God, there's another purpose here, see? But God meant it for good. 
in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What a wonderful verse. It tells me, it tells me God is so loving, so wise. If I trust in him, he can override evil deeds that people do to me. What a precious promise. If I keep my heart right toward him, don't strike back. Don't take vengeance into your hand. Keep your trust in the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord. God can bring blessing out of hateful, evil deeds that people bring into my life. So that's the first thing. That's why I say don't don't spend a lot of time worrying about the source. But here's another example. B, God can work good in our lives when the devil tempts and attacks. I get that in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, 8, and 9. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations Paul had received. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. I didn't want to get proud. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now look what he says. A messenger of Satan. Right there. A messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, this messenger of Satan that he was feeling. Concerning this, I implored the Lord's three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace, okay, messenger of Satan, verse 7, my grace, God's grace, verse 9. Which is at work? Both. Do you see it? Both. My grace is sufficient for you, For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, now Paul speaks, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so the power of Christ may dwell in me. What a fascinating account. It's, I think, the only time you see it so explicitly stated in the New Testament. Both parties, Satan and God, both are involved. Paul says very clearly, both are involved in his thorn in the flesh. But they don't have equal roles. Satan's work is allowed by God. And you think of the opening chapters of the book of Job, but that's, that's another account. Satan's work is allowed by God. And in ways we probably can't fully understand right now, Satan's work is used by God for Paul's good. Not for Paul's comfort. Remember Romans 8, 28, 29. Not for his comfort, but for his ultimate good. It is good for me, the psalmist said, that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So so not only do we not need to fear the devil, but God's word says God is actually able to bring growth through anything he sees fit to allow to transpire in my life. If my heart is pure, God will always do one of two things with the devil's attack on my life. He will do one of two things all the time. Most of the time, he will prevent it. I love 1 John 5, 18, one of my favorite verses. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's a great promise. 
So either God will prevent it, or secondly, sometimes God will actually use the tactics of the devil to sharpen and deepen my spiritual life. That's in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 we read. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And so, you have to wonder, which of those two options is actually more frustrating to the devil? A, to be disallowed any possibility of touching Christians. Or B, just when some opening is granted, to find the Spirit of God actually deepening my commitment to Jesus through something Satan wants to do. Either way, I think he's totally frustrated. I said not to spend a lot of time trying to figure out the source. Sometimes people can be mean and cruel. God can work. Sometimes the devil can do things. God can still work. Here's, here's C. God can work in our lives through his own times of direct discipline and chastening sometimes. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children. So, yeah, there's this clear teaching from Scripture that God at times intentionally brings difficulties into our lives. Kenneth Copeland is just wrong at that point. There is, as the psalmist said in our opening text, there's a kind of affliction that helps us learn God's statutes, that teaches me to listen to God in a deeper, more careful way, that strips away the white noise of distractions. So the important point here, the important point here, I said don't spend a lot of time trying to trace the source of your trial, especially when you're right in the middle of it. And the reason is, wherever the affliction comes from, and however long it lasts, the important factor for me, for you, is not the source of the affliction, but what God wants to do through it. Remember, church, remember. God is so loving He is so wise, wiser than most people think. He can truly make all things, all things, hard, easy, happy, sad, pleasant, unpleasant, painful, pleasurable, difficult, easy. He can make all things work together for good. So, so here's the lesson where we are right now. Never judge God by isolated events. Let me say it again. Never judge God by isolated events. Romans 8.28 doesn't say that everything God brings into my life by itself is good. It says he works everything together. You have to look at the big picture, overall plan. He takes everything and works it. Just this past week, during our isolation, uh, Rini made 
She knows how I love this. She makes this wonderful chocolate cake. If that camera was closer, you could see where the chocolate, where it all went. Here's the thing. You take, and I love that cake, but if you take most of the ingredients that go into the cake and you just isolate them and eat them by themselves, a mouthful of flour, a raw egg, most of the individual ingredients that you put into that cake aren't good by themselves. But if you have someone who knows what they're doing, okay, and they take all the different, all the different events, sweet, sour, good, bad, and they work, they work them together. See, that's what Paul says God does. He can work everything together so that the result is good. And the good is We'll get to be more like Jesus. So, so consider these wise words from the psalmist. It can. It doesn't feel it at the moment. It can be good to be afflicted. And in our next study, we're going we're to show just some of the good things that God can do in the dark seasons of our lives. Let's pray. These are truths that are easily read. It's not that we don't know they're in the Bible. But everything in our human selves chafes against unpleasantness and trial. And oh, how we need, we need your word and we need Holy Spirit. We need you to come and plant the word, find some good soil in our hearts. Find some point where this word can be planted and grafted and start to bud and leaf and produce flower and fruit. There's so much at stake. This world watches. May they see a love for Jesus in his church. May they see a love for Jesus that transcends circumstance and causes other people to lift their eyes unto the hope that we have in Christ. You're a good God, and we love you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.